An inspiration for the Scala Map was an interview with the French film historian, critic, curator and godfather of the film conservation movement worldwide, Henri Langlois. In Jacques Richard's 2004 documentary, Henri Langlois, The Phantom of the Cinematheque, answering an interviewer's questions in front of a screen onto which a Lumiere Brothers film is projected, Langlois says, My goal was to show shadows of the living coexisting with shadows of the dead, for that's the essence of cinema. It collapses time and space. It goes beyond the fourth dimension. With the silent black-and-white projected image distorted over his caramel cardigan, Langlois turns to face the screen. Here we see Seville in a fragment of reframed Lumiere film. It's a procession there, in 1895, but that's not what counts. What matters is that these people are like us, and as they walk, we walk along. So the audience is right there with them. So it's like early news reporting? You call it news, but it's much smarter than that, because news reports are rarely intelligent. They go about filming a head of state or a horse or whatever, whereas these scenes live and breathe. It's real life, which mere news as we know it can't capture. Langlois pauses. He gestures with his cigarette to indicate the passage of time as he chooses his next thought. He's been smoking the whole way through the interview. Did we mention French? Call it super duper news reporting. Only cinema can do this. Capture shadows as flickering, fluttering, moving images, moths in an illuminated jar, chiaroscuro and technicolor ghosts trapped in amber for eternity. Not only how people in those moments looked, but people's emotions in those moments as well. We are the first generation of human beings who can look back into our great-grandparents' lives. We can see the gaze in people's eyes a century ago as they look out at us as well into an uncertain future. All the inventions of cinema, the mechanisms for capturing and creating moving images, the habit and cultures of cinema going, the buildings, the business and marketing of film, the movie magazines... The bodies of film appraisal and criticism, the badges, toys, brochures and song booklets, the film archives, the libraries of DVDs, in public buildings, in colleges, in people's homes, the files on computers and handheld digital devices, the cosplay, the assemblages of images, film scores and lines of dialogue stored in people's heads. All of this collecting, organising, cherishing of the interconnected past, present and the future, of the personal and the political, is an intentional effort by billions of people. Almost all human beings love cinema. I love you. I know. We will not break this friendship. I will be by your side to my last breath. Conservative by nature, labour by experience. Play it, Sam. As a cultural expression, as an art form, cinema comprises all the other expressive forms. Music, literature, drama, sculpture, visual art, design, costume and fashion, and the sciences too, especially chemistry and engineering. These forms of human expression transcend race, religion and nationality. Arguably, the only thing missing from a century or more of movies is a good film about football, 
Though there's a film about a murder during a friendly game of footy on the Scala map, 1939's The Arsenal Stadium Mystery. Leslie, yes, this is Inspector Slade. How do you do? How do you do? You'd be the nearest man to Dice when he fell, wouldn't you? Yes, I was, Tom. Can you tell us what happened? When he had the ball, I rushed forward to tackle him. Just as I got there, stumbled and fell to the ground. What did he look like? He was sweating badly and looked very grey. Grey? Yes, he looked terrible. Terrible. More importantly, cinema transcends blogs, tweets, news op-ed columns and opinions because films are stories, not seminars. Opinions are rarely intelligent. Stories live and breathe because they're about more than two people. There is more than an author and a reader in a story, there is also at least one character. Call stories super-duper opinions. Multi-viewpoint stories are as old as stories themselves, but in the age of mass production, of words and then of moving images. Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations were among the first efforts to depict a city or a community as a complex system of interrelated personalities and emotions. On the Scala map, the David Lean film of Great Expectations, regarded widely as one of the most faithful adaptations of Dickens, is at Chancery Lane. In the 1860 novel, Pip, played by John Mills in the film, takes up lodgings in Barnard's Inn, despite having been a blacksmith's apprentice. Mr Pip? Mr Pocket? Oh dear me, I'm extremely sorry, but the fact is I've been out on your account, for I thought coming from the country you might like a little fruit, and I went to Covent Garden Market to get it good. Well, thank you. It's very nice of you. Can I take the parcels? It sticks, you know. Pray come in. Now, this is the sitting room. Rather musty, but Barnard's is musty. This reflects the fact that the area around Chancery Lane, while associated with the Inns of Court, was a far more socially fluid area in Dickens' time than the well-appointed buildings may suggest. Cinema is a team effort by humanity, but the wealth to fund most of these inventions in the second half of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th centuries came from the last proceeds of Victorian imperialism. The legacy of cinema technology and culture began in Britain and in France. It was then transferred to and perfected in America, Germany, Argentina, British-run India, the USSR and elsewhere. This is a mixed inheritance but the benign aspect of this rolling process of recording people's lives over 100 years, the ability that the whole human race now has to travel emotionally in time and space through movies, for moments to exist now and forever, as an inheritance which the peoples of Britain and France should revel in. And they do. Another team effort over the last century was the global resistance of fascism. Langlois, the impractical romantic, falling asleep on the steps to his own museum, projecting films in the stairwell when the screening rooms in the Cinematheque were full, scared of his wife but bewitched by their strange mother-son sadomasochistic relationship, I did say French. Langlois, with his hair and his cigarette and the cake crumbs down his cardi, was also a resistance fighter. By saving the physical print of the Blue Angel, Langlois not only fought fascism by subverting its cultural vandalism, he fought for a common humanity by preserving its relics as well. His valour was not only intellectual but also physical. 
Langlois took possession of the cans of Joseph von Sternberg's film, an act which in German-occupied Paris risked imprisonment or death. A collective European effort to resist fascism and to overcome other tyrannies over a century of cinema is present and correct on the Scala map. At Woodford, where her daughter Sylvia lived in sin, causing her to break off ties, suffragist and campaigner for women's rights, Emmeline Pankhurst addresses the camera directly about the need for votes for women in 80 million women want. Bow Road is suffragette, with Meryl Streep playing Emmeline and Helena Bonham Carter as activist Edith New. We are fighting for a time in which every little girl born into the world will have an equal chance with her brothers. Never underestimate the power we women have to define our own destinies. We do not want to be lawbreakers. We want to be lawmakers. Daughter Sylvia Pankhurst became active in the socialist self-help movement in the East End, particularly in Bow. Sylvia helped set up a free milk service for mothers and kids and a cup-priced cafe from the disused Gunmaker's Arms pub in 1915. <laughs> How far we've come in a hundred years. And on through two world wars. On release during the Second World War in 1943, the life and death of Colonel Blimp suggested that the enemy could be human, decent, and that war by any means may not be justified by the end result of victory. The Home Guard HQ in Blimp is 138 Park Lane near Hyde Park Corner, whereas put on the map for its sympathetic view of a German officer, Anton Walbrook, and his friendship over several decades with a British officer, Roger Livesey, the film was protested in London. Its release was delayed in the USA. What's going on here? Invasions. But war starts at midnight. Oh yes, you say war starts at midnight. How do you know the enemy says so too? My dear fellow, that was agreed, wasn't it? Agreed, my foot. How many agreements have been kept by the enemy since this war started? We agreed to keep to the rules of the game and they go on kicking us in the pants. When I joined the army, the only agreement I entered into was to defend my country by every means at my disposal, not only by the National Sporting Club rules, but by every means that have existed since Cain slugged Abel. Stop it. Don't we know that they're counting on us to keep to the rules? Stop that it. That they openly boast about it? That they laugh Stop at us? Stop it! Lieutenant... Watson, or whatever your name is, you are not in Hyde Park with an audience of loafers. I am Major General Wynn Candy. These other gentlemen have all seen service, distinguished service with the British Army. All I can say, sir, that when Napoleon said that an army marched on its stomach, I'd better stop, sir. You're an extremely impudent young... Partly shot at Hornchurch in The Lion Has Wings, 1939, Rafe Richardson stars as a pilot in a hastily made Alexander Corder production which convinced the British government of the value of film as wartime propaganda. The American distribution of London Can Take It in 1940 is often credited with having helped to make the case for America to enter the war against fascism by depicting the impact of German bombing on the civilian population. The King and Queen are seen surveying bomb damage. The narrator, US war correspondent Quentin Reynolds, doesn't comment on them. Their status is depicted as being equal to any other Londoners caught in the Blitz. But London is fighting back. 
I am a neutral reporter. I have watched the people of London live and die ever since death in its most ghastly garb began to come here as a nightly visitor five weeks ago. I have watched them stand by their homes. I have seen them made homeless. I have seen them move to new homes. And I can assure you there is no panic, no fear, no despair in London town. There is nothing but determination, confidence, and high courage among the people of Churchill's Island. And they know that every night the RAF bombers fly deep into the heart of Germany, bombing munition works, airplane factories, canal, cutting the arteries which keep the heart of Germany alive. It is true that the Nazis will be over again tomorrow night and the night after that and every night. They will drop thousands of bombs and they'll destroy hundreds of buildings and they'll kill thousands of people. But a bomb has its limitations. It can only destroy buildings and kill people. It cannot kill the unconquerable spirit and courage of the people of London. London can take it. Though many senior military figures doubted that fascist Germany planned to mount an amphibious assault on the British mainland in the summer of 1940, Winston Churchill headed a coalition government and thought otherwise. His plan to repel the advancing German army in the low countries of Europe had failed with the humiliation of the British Expeditionary Force, and the prospects looked grim. Chalfont St Giles doubled as Warmington on sea in Dad's Army on television in the two original movies. The Home Guard of Volunteers is depicted in Dad's Army, which on television went on for three years longer than World War II, can be figures of fun because the invasion never went ahead. In the early 70s, Britain still faced civil emergencies, social upheaval and the threat of nuclear annihilation. Dad's Army was tea time's primal screen therapy for the nation. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. So, stay where you are. If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. Peter Watkins, 1965 BBC drama documentary The War Game, depicting Britain under nuclear attack was withdrawn before transmission under government pressure because it's so realistic It's on the Scala map at Caledonian Road near Houseman's Bookshop which became a focus for the campaign for nuclear disarmament Quota Quickie, that kind of girl, 1963 made at Twickenham Studios, near to where it is on the map, at Richmond Station, is a warning of the perils of contracting a sexually transmitted disease, which includes footage of a banner bomb march to Aldermaston. Eager for life and laughter, she swings with a footloose and uninhibited youth of today. You will meet Linda, another kind of girl. You must have thought about it. Thought about what? Well, sex. She wanted marriage. 
he couldn't wait. Kevin Brownlow and Alan Mollow wrote, produced and directed It Happened Here over eight years, imagining an alternate history where the fascist invasion of the UK, planned in 1940, went ahead. Filming in Chester Terrace near Regent's Park, War Minister John Profumo sent his butler out to inquire why a Nazi marching band was going past his front door. This is London, and these are its people, people with one great and common purpose, to pay tribute to the achievements in their country of National Socialism. To this, the first big public display since the army landed, come people from many miles around the metropolis. Filmed at Denham Studios in Buckinghamshire in A Matter of Life and Death in 1946. Doomed airman David Niven survives the crash of his bomber due to a clerical error in heaven and has a second chance at life and love. RAF Northolt was the base for the Polish Air Force in the Battle of Britain. Poles are among the airmen seen filing into heaven to collect their wings. Come on, fellas, break it up, spread out here. Woman's back. Oh, uh, do you have your socials here? No, we don't. Okay, we'll stay. Officer Swartz, of course. We're all the same up here, Captain. Excuse me, brother. On the Scala map, the films at nearby Ricelip Gardens Station. After the war, rebuilding, especially public housing, was a pressing social issue in the capital as it remains to this day. Ken Loach shot Cathy Come Home around Camden on 60mm for the BBC's Wednesday play. Cathy, Carol White and Reg, played by Ray Brooks, are young parents. After Reg is injured at work, they lose their home and everything falls apart. Cathy ends up homeless and social services take her kids away. When I first came here... We never had none of this lot. We never had no children in here. This was only for a married couple or one on their own. No children. You had ladies here then. There was rats under the floorboard and I had to cancel down to take the floorboards all up and put all poison down for the rat. And they said that definitely rats have been there, but they've probably gone somewhere else to annoy somebody else. Like It's been called an ice pick in the brain of all who saw it. The impact of Cathy Come Home on audiences was immense. The play was discussed in Parliament. Loach points out that in fact very little changed as a result of its broadcast. Rules were altered so men were allowed to stay in hostels with their wives and kids. Almost half a century later, a Cambridge University study in 2015 estimates that 83,000 young people are homeless in the UK, three times the official government figures. Camden, pubs, theatres and cinemas appear frequently in the cinema of the 60s and 70s as symbols of urban decay, and of Victorian Edwardian splendour. In Radio 1, 1979, Robert David Beams lives over the Plaza Cinema that was at 211 Camden High Street. The disused Bedford Theatre seen in Cathy Come Home also appears in the James Mason documentary The London Nobody Knows, 1969. Poor Cow, 1967, Ken Loach's first feature film, starring Carol White, Terence Stamp and John Binden, is about the bad choices and difficult life of an 18-year-old mum from South London. There are exterior shots of Plough Road and Cologne Road near Southfields Tube Station, a reminder of how much of London remained bomb-damaged and run down 20 years after the Blitz. Why film about radicals, underworlds and countercultures, though? The music critic and author, Charles Shaw Murray, has described the counterculture as the endlessly rejuvenating and replenishing bed that feeds the mainstream culture. A thesis which arises from this collection of radical, 
transgressive, occasionally transgendered films, which ran contrary to the then-accepted mainstream thinking of the time, is of an electric London. Harry Beck's design for the London Tube Map is based on an electrical circuit diagram. From the complexity of Edwardian attempts to visualise an underground rail network, which by the 30s was connecting the city to Metroland, the urban and suburban to the countryside, Beck the engineer created a beautifully simple vision of London as an integrated system. Straight and diagonal lines, ticks for stations and circles for connections at stations transformed a representation of the metropolis from the bewildering Bolognese of commuter routes of the earlier attempts to map the underground system into a mandala for the common man and woman. Though often overlooked by them in his lifetime, Transport for London now recognises the understated brilliance of Harry Beck, the high modernist. Since his death, Beck's designs have become rightly lionised and the basis for most subway maps across the world. As English as tuppence and as legible as the Pilgrim's Progress, Beck's transformation of London as an idea was as literal for the city's congregants as the progression had been from the Latin Mass to the King James Bible after the Protestant Revolution. In the sense that Inigo Jones thought of architecture as an idea, for there was an English Renaissance ideal of an intellectually contingent and cohesive built environment expressed in Jones's buildings, and foremost in his Whitehall banqueting palace opposite Downing Street, the first structure to be built in England in a classical idiom after the Roman withdrawal from Britain in the sixth century of the Common Era. Before, between and after the wars, through the films on the Scarlet Map, one can see demimons emerging, congregations migrating through the night to conspire, in the literal sense of breathing together, at the movies. Electricity made it possible to travel across the city, the electric light in the form of street lighting, lights in shop windows and then, arguably the last machine of the machine age, motion picture projection, drew people together to participate in audiences, catalyzing popular trends as box office receipts. The electric guitar boosted the signal of kids in the suburbs, not only in a hard day's night help and performance, but in lesser-known cop-and-pop flicks like Dateline Diamonds and Live It Up. By the 60s, these converging and commingling confluences of ideas and of humanity became a single, thundering, underground stream which raged on through the 70s and 80s, as seen in films like Breaking Glass, Rude Boy and The Filth and the Fury. By the 90s, having avoided catching HIV-AIDS from an iceberg, with the prospect of nuclear Armageddon receding and with psychedelics once again to the fore, this rambunctious underground stream dwindled to a pilled-up burble of cautiously multicultural, vaguely liberal hedonism. This era was typified more by unfilmed and unfilmable cultural artefacts which didn't make it onto the Scala map than ones which did. The tepidly anarchic Brick Lane scene of not especially young British artists and middle-class crusties mingling with Bengali shop owners' kids. Zadie Smith's white teeth. Train spotting to find the era, but it's set in Edinburgh, even if Renton's flat was filmed at 78A Telgarth Road, West London, between Barons Court and West Kensington Tube Stations. The Cyberdelia nightclub scene in 1995's Hackers was filmed in Brentford Bath's Clifton Road near Kew Gardens Tube Station. But by the mid-90s it had more to do with its American setting and the DNA lounge in San Francisco than it did with crusties with smart drinks in the chill-out areas at Megatripolis and Escape from Samsara in London. Much of this meandering mid-90s period is recorded in Rachel Lichtenstein's book with Ian Sinclair, Rodinsky's Room, like the cultural thrall of rough trade records in the early 80s, when white Rastafarianism and rip rig and panic were also a thing, the light of invention had receded beneath the surface a long way down the tunnel. No cinematic record of the cultural moment exists. 
It's unclear whether the disruptive technology of the internet and social media is the fourth manifestation of electricity as a countercultural force in London. A tent city outside St Paul's Cathedral during the Occupy protests in 2012, following a global financial collapse, led to a lot of very nice free lunches for city workers, but not much else. The atomizing individualistic nature of digital communication, as with watching a movie on your laptop or your phone, is personal rather than political in any meaningful sense. A defining image of London's radicalism in 2016 could be Labour's then deputy leader, Tom Watson, a white man wearing white trousers in a muddy field in Glastonbury at a silent disco for people who still possess white earbud earphones to denote their iPhone ownership, while elsewhere a coup was being mounted by his friend, the Shadow Foreign Secretary. Warm beer, middle age, revisiting misspent youth at the weekend, prepared to sling mud around so long as none of it touches your zone of privilege and your white shorts, dancing to the tune in one's own head, but convinced every individualistic act is somehow shaking up the establishment. Watson had remained in the Labour Party after the election of it to its leadership of an earnest geography teacher in a fisherman's cap, Jeremy Corbyn, while television comedian Robert Webb had franced off several months earlier. Until 2016, Webb had starred in Channel 4's Peep Show, in which apparently pointless, straight, 40-something Caucasian men with persistent drug habits were, unaccountably, able to indefinitely extend a slacker lifestyle. This lifestyle mostly revolved around their parvenu musical ambitions and getting in and out of bed with a succession of attractive women a decade or so younger than the pallid and pudgy, mainly male, protagonists. Watson and Webb are both products of the post-war dispensation. University degrees without tuition fees, easy but unfulfilling summer jobs funding lonely planet sojourns in poorer, much poorer countries, the National Health Service. Affordable mortgages in the southeast of England where they chose finally to settle down. Late night slots on Channel 4 where alternative comedy had once filled the hinterland between getting back from the pub and blurry somnolence. By 2016, working class men like Webb and Watson, who'd gone through their vision quests on MDMA, speed and cocaine at manumission in resorts like Ibiza and Goa in northern India, then, in their mid-40s, they hoisted up the ladder behind them, consigning younger generation to a future of zero-hours contracts and never being able to afford their own home. As Mitchell and Webb said in a sketch that became probably their most iconic moment on social media and YouTube, do you think we're the bad guys? Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. <laughs> Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? <laughs> I don't, so... Hans. Are we the baddies? Watson's solitary rave at Glastonbury Music Festival coincided with England's decision to leave the European Union. This sparked a coup to remove Corbyn, in which Watson plotted from behind the scenes, and a five-hold increase in racial attacks though not in Scotland, which voted to remain, and where the increase in hate crimes was zero. The Remain vote 
in the British capital, one in 28 London boroughs with 2.2 million votes. Only Barking and Dagenham, Bexley, Sutton, Havering and Hillingdon voted for Brexit. Having returned an Urdu-speaking Muslim mayor from Tooting only weeks before, multicultural London finds itself hostage to the whims of the mostly white, mostly male, 90s-style key opinion formers who no longer run what, with the advent of an all-night tube service, will be a 24-hour, always-on global city. They are still on your internets, bugging out the secret Weezer gig in their heads. And all your base will belong to them. Our podcast is More Music for Films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice.